Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, coming to you again from uh, our south headquarters here, coming from the No Nonsense headquarters down in behind the Orange Curtain this week. And um, <clears throat> this coming Sunday, of course, is Halloween. And every year, Christians struggle with the celebration of Halloween, wondering if they're participating in something dark or occult or merely overly secular and materialist. And there's a ton of misinformation about Halloween. Um, I did a, a tape on it for St. Joseph Communications like 20 some years ago. And I think, you know, they, they continue to sell a bunch of them every year. But the myths persist. And although they persist, I have noticed that pretty much every year since, I see more and more Catholic outlets, um, you know, re-embracing Halloween for what it really is and discovering the truth about the Christian origin of many of our Halloween traditions. So we're going to talk about that later in the program. Also, in the traditional liturgical calendar, the Feast of Christ the King is going to be celebrated this Sunday. Uh, it's the always the Sunday before All Saints Day, typically last Sunday in October. Uh, and this year, it falls on Halloween, which is uh, the same as the very first year was promulgated by Pius XI in 1925, and the first Christ the King Mass uh, was celebrated in 1926. So that was actually on Halloween. So we had this, this kind of great three-day celebration of the entire communion of saints, because you have Christ the King, which is all about Christ being king, not just at the end of the world, but here and now. So you've got this great celebration for the church militant, followed by All Souls or All Saints Day for the Church Triumphant, and then All Souls Day for the, the souls in purgatory. So uh, um, since the feast is celebrated on the last Sunday of the year in the uh, old calendar, and it's celebrated on the very last Sunday of the year, right? Last Sunday of October in the old calendar, last Sunday of the liturgical year in the new order of the Mass, I'm going to split the difference, and we're going to talk about Christ the King on next week's program. But uh, to start us off today, uh, we're going to have the gospel from uh, the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost. That's the Sunday that started this week. And is the question of giving to God what is God and to Caesar what is Caesar's, taken from Matthew 22, verses 15 through 21. And we're reading from the New Catholic Bible translation for our translation today. Then the Pharisees went off and made plans to trap him, that is Jesus, in what he said. They sent some of their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, and said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, nor are you concerned with anyone's opinion for you, uh, for you do not care about people's opinions. Tell us then what you think about this. Is it lawful or not to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus was aware of their malicious intent, and he said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin that is used for paying the tax. When they brought him a denarius, he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? And they replied, Caesar's. On hearing this, he said to them, Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar, and to God what is due to God. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Uh, you'll remember uh, a few weeks ago, it was the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, and, and that gospel was the par uh, parable of the marriage feast. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees understood that the parable of the marriage feast was meant for them. And they hated our Lord more than ever. So now the controversies between Jesus and the religious authorities are resumed with the question of paying taxes to the Roman emperor. Uh, the empire had been levying a tax on Palestine for over 20 years at this point. And every year, uh, all the Jewish people were expected to pay a tax of one denarius each. A denarius, as we uh, learned a week or so ago, being uh, an average day's pay at the time. So the Jewish people regarded that tax as a sign of their unjust oppression. So to pay the tax was regarded as, as a denial of the Jewish messianic hopes. But to challenge the tax, of course, uh, meant to take the side of the zealots, the revolutionary agitators uh, of whom Barabbas was one and, and who forbade their members to pay the tax. So the Pharisees figured uh, if Jesus said to pay the tax, uh, they could turn the people against him. And if he said not to pay the tax, they could accuse him to the Romans. Once again, uh, they think they have Jesus between a rock and a hard place. And you'll notice also the gospel says the Pharisees have conspired with the Herodians. And the Herodians, they were the partisans and the, the courtiers of the reigning dynasty of the Herods. And so although, although they were Jews in religion, their spirit was very worldly, very Gentile. Right, so kind of Jews in name only. So not surprisingly, the Pharisees hated the Herodians, but they hated our Lord more. And as the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they wanted to put Jesus off guard. So they prefaced their question with compliments. We know that you're truthful. We know that you teach the truth. We know that you don't care what people think about you. You don't care about opinions. But, you know, unlike the Pharisees and the Herodians, Jesus really didn't care what people thought about him. So he was immune to their flattery, and he calls them out as hypocrites because they were acting. Hypocrite means, literally means actor. And they were acting as if they really sincerely wanted to learn what was God's will about paying the tax, when really they just wanted to lay a snare for our Lord. And, of course, Jesus catches them in their own trap uh, with his answer that it's proper to give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. Uh, you know, that is the coin, but, but that is more important to give to God what's due to God, which is, you know, true worship and good works. So um, also in this gospel, we learn a lesson about obedience and about temporal authority. And I think it makes a good lead in to uh, next Sunday's Christ the King in, in the, you know, in the traditional calendar here, because we're not only allowed, uh, but we're commanded to obey the authority of the state, you know, the legitimate authority of the state, to pay such taxes as are due, because the, the authority of the state is actually ordained by God. All authority comes from God. You remember that's, we'll read that next week when Jesus is before Pilate. And he says uh, to our Lord, don't you know that I have the power, the authority to crucify you or to, or to set you free? And he says, you would have no power over me at all if it were not given you from above. Right? All authority comes from God, and the state is ordained by God to protect the lives and the property of their citizens. Right? The church is supreme in the spiritual realm, and the state in the secular. Uh, and, that, and that's not separation of church and state. The, the two should exist in, in a happy concord, you know, in a perfect world. Because the fact is, if there was no temporal authority 
disorder and robbery and murder. And so it'd be like every place would be like Chicago, <laughs> you know, with all due respect to, to people in the Windy City. Um, you have to have temporal authority. You have to fund the police, right? And, and so the, the authority of the state exists for the common good, for the good of the subjects of the state or the citizens in our country. And it's the duty of these to pay taxes without which the state couldn't, uh, couldn't run, couldn't be kept up. Um, they tell Jesus, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And what a wonderful tribute the Pharisees uh, paid in our, to our Lord with these words, you know, it's only a shame that they didn't really mean them. You know, they kind of like uh, today's social media fact checkers. <laughs> And so many people today are in the habit of lying, you know, not just uh, on social media or, or, or mainstream media, but even the high places of, of government and, and the academy, medicine, the church. You know, I could multiply examples, but I, I'm sure I don't need to. You're perfectly aware that, that lies are dangerous. And one of the most dangerous things about them uh, in our own lives is that they grow in the telling. You know, and it's because of pride and because we have you know, this propensity to exaggerate and to embellish when we tell a story. So, so what starts as, as a lie or, or, or a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation can be repeated. And as it's repeated, it grows worse and worse. You know, I, I think of uh, <clears throat> like a small town cop like Andy of Mayberry, right? And one day Barney comes in to tell him that Vernon P. Worrell has stolen a whole wagon load of apple, apples from Farmer Jordan's uh, orchard having trouble with my lips this morning, Farmer Jones Orchard. So Andy goes to ask the farmer if he saw Vernon take a wagon load of apples. And he says, oh no, Floyd told me. So Andy asks Floyd, did you see it happen? And, and Floyd says, no, Goober told me that <clears throat> Vernon stole a, wheel, a wheelbarrow full of apples, not a wagon full. So Andy goes to Goober to ask, did you see Vernon steal a wheelbarrow full of apples? apples? And Goober says, no, what I told Floyd was that he took a pocket full of apples. Aunt B told me. So Andy asked Aunt B, did you see him steal a pocket full of apples from Farmer Jones' orchard? And she says, goodness, no. I only said he took one apple. Opie told me. And so Andy goes to Opie and says, did you see Vernon P. Worrell steal an apple from Farmer Jones' orchard? And Opie says, gosh, no, Pa. I was just talking to Vernon the other day, and he said, looks like Farmer Jones' apples are getting ripe. It's about time somebody picked them. And so it goes with a lie. You know, we can do great harm without even meaning to just because we're careless uh, in, in what we say. If we're not careful about telling the truth and, you know, remember what your mom told you. If you can't say something good about a person, don't say anything at all. I remember about 30 years ago uh, seeing Charlton Heston on The Daily Show. It was 1993. Uh, Clinton had just been elected. Heston was president of the National Rifle Association, and he didn't know that The Daily Show was actually a comedy program and not a real news show. But I'll never forget when, when John Stewart asked Charlton Heston, well-known conservative, what do you think of Bill Clinton? He didn't lose his composure. He didn't rise to the bait. He said simply, he is our president. And then it was John Stewart that didn't know what to say. And it got a laugh. But it shows how much dignity and grace and respect for the office that Charlton Heston had. Can't say something nice. Don't say anything at all. Okay, we're going to be back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
Okay, welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Going to talk about Halloween, but first, just a a final word on the truth in our lives. You know, um, millions of people, you, I suspect, me also, I mean, we go on social media. I look at Catholic websites and look at the com boxes every day. I I go on uh, Facebook fairly regularly, um, Twitter not so much, but... But I do go on social media, but I almost never comment anymore. You know, because as Thomas Aquinas, or not Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Akempis tells us in The Imitation of Christ that we should avoid superfluous words. He says, flee as much as possible the company of worldly people. For discussing worldly matters, no matter how good the intention, is a great obstacle to the spiritual life. If we are not careful, we can be easily deceived and attracted by the vanities of the world. He says, often I regret things that I have said and wish that I had not spent so much time in company. And you can certainly compare this to, you know, sitting at the computer for hours, uh, uh, doom scrolling, as they call it, Uh, you know, um, just getting all bent out of shape over this or that trumped up outrage, you know, latest news story, and then getting into these virtual arguments only to suddenly realize that it's two o'clock in the morning and you've wasted hours that could have been better spent in prayer or spiritual reading or just getting a decent amount of sleep. And why do we do it? Well, Thomas Akempa says, we think that by getting together with others, we'll be a comfort to one another and find relaxation discussing the things that burden us. But the end result of all this gossip about things we like or dislike, right, just like the thumb up, thumb down at the end of every post, um, he says it only leaves us with a guilty conscience. But the sad part of it is that all we say and do is for nothing. For the comfort we receive from others hinders us from receiving the comfort that comes from God. It is better to watch and pray so that we do not waste time in idleness. If you have leave to speak and it is expedient, then speak of God and those things which will edify. In other words, if you have nothing good to say, then say nothing at all. And that is no nonsense. Okay, Uh, every year at this time, Halloween rolls around and we have uh, the Christian people, good Christian people struggling with whether or not or uh, how they should go about celebrating the holiday, whether they should include their kids. You know, is it is it overly materialist, overly secular? Is it a cult? You know, what's the deal? So I'm just going to try and answer as many questions about Halloween as I can in the next 15 minutes or so. Starting with, what is it? Well, I'm sure you already know that the word Halloween, it comes from the Old English, uh, and it is a contraction of All Hallows' Eve. In English, hallow, uh, hallow is a saint, right? It's where we get the word holy. And October 31st is the eve or the vigil of All Saints Day and All Hallows' Eve, Halloween. Uh, Okay, was Halloween originally this dark pagan festival for conciliating dark powers at the time when the veil between the worlds was thinnest? And did the church then just baptize this by sort of covering over those uh, pagan practices with a thin veneer of Christianity? Well, the answer is no. Catholic or Halloween is as Catholic as the rosary. If you go back to the early days of the church, um, there were so many martyrs, especially in Rome, but all throughout uh, the early church. And the Christians were accustomed to celebrate uh, the anniversary of a martyr's death, you know, just locally, right, in the places where they were martyred. 
uh, in the fourth century, neighboring dioceses began to interchange feasts and, and join in a common feast. They had a common feast for all saints uh, on the Friday after Easter. Then in the year 610, Pope Boniface IV consecrated the Pantheon in Rome, right? This, this great uh, temple that was dedicated to all the gods, and he consecrated the Pantheon to the Blessed Virgin and all the martyrs. And so, and then, so he ordered the, the um, celebration of, of the All Saints to be moved to May the 16th, which was the anniversary of his consecration of the Pantheon. And then in the 8th century, Gregory III consecrated a chapel in the Basilica of St. Peter to All Saints. And he moved the this, this celebration in Rome, the All Saints Day celebration, to November 1st. Remember, a lot of um, Christians were martyred in Rome. And so every year, more and more people would descend on Rome for the holiday of All Saints. And one of the reasons he moved it to the 1st of November was so that it would be after harvest time and be able to accommodate all of those pilgrims that needed, you know, bread and wine to, to eat. Okay, so um, that's in the 8th century. Then Gregory IV in the 9th century extended the celebration on the 1st of November, not just to Rome, but to the whole church. And the vigil, of course, uh, Halloween was observed as early as the feast itself. And then in, in the 15th century, Sixtus IV um, added a octave. So there was kind of a miniature Halloween season. It was called All Hallowtide, right? So it's this eight days of, you know, praying to the saints, praying for the souls in purgatory, uh, preparing, thinking about the four last things and so forth. Good timing comes right before Lent. Uh, and and that was celebrated all the way up until the 1950s, I think about 1955, which is when Pius XII started the reform of the liturgy, right? Where he reformed Holy Week and he uh, um, got rid of a number of other celebrations, including the octave of All Saints, the All Hallowtide. And, you know, even traditional Catholics today don't celebrate All Hallowtide because they typically use the Missal of 1962, where it had already been removed. Okay. But what about the pagans? You know, what about the, this, this time when the, the veil between the worlds is thin, you know, uh, are, are these Halloween practices that we uh, think of today, uh, did they have a pagan origin? Well, pagan people, whether it was the Romans or, or, you know, people in Eastern Europe or people in pre-Columbian America or whatever, pagan people generally saw life and death as cyclical. And they typically celebrated the dead in the springtime, you know, when the cycle was starting over. And if you look at, at even in um, Western literature, modern literature, you look at uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, for example. This is from by Washington Irving. This is the, the kind of quintessential American Halloween story, except if you read it, you'll find out it doesn't happen at Halloween. It happens in the springtime, as per the old customs of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Or in Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula, uh, the, the, the Transylvanian peasants tell Renfield, do not, you know, go to Castle Dracula tonight. It's, it's Walpurgis night. This is the night when the dead roam. You know, you got to go inside. And, and again, Walpurgis night is in April, right? It's springtime. Here in Southern California, uh, the Hispanic community celebrates the, the Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, which was also originally celebrated in the spring. And their, you know, funerary traditions, their way of honoring the, the dead became part of their observance of All Saints Day and All Souls Day. And, of course, was transferred to uh, November. You see, 
the idea of, of death, well, the idea of life as linear, the idea that, that uh, all of humanity is marching towards some heavenly goal, and the idea of death as a grim reaper, you know, bringing in this harvest of souls, either to be gathered unto God or to cast in the fires of hell, that is biblical imagery. That, that comes from the words of Jesus himself, right? The parable of the wheat, the wheat and the weeds representing the souls of the just and the souls of sinners. Jesus says, let them grow together until the harvest. Then at harvest time, I will say to the reapers, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles for burning, but gather my wheat into my barn. Likewise, the, the idea of the day of judgment or doomsday, this is a Christian belief. Okay, and, and what about trick-or-treat? Is that an old pagan custom? Sorry, no again. Trick-or-treat is, is as American as apple pie. I remember I, I asked my dad about it. When my dad was a boy back in the 1920s and 30s, they celebrated Halloween as, as a mischief night, you know, throwing eggs at, at cars and soaping windows, you know, pushing over the outhouse, that kind of thing. And that's a custom that can be traced, I believe, to the Scottish Calvinists, you know, a, a couple hundred years ago, mocking uh, their, their Catholic neighbor's belief in purgatory. Uh, and so, that, I mean, that's kind of where the mischief thing began. And then in the 1920s and 30s, um, the Boy Scouts of America promoted putting an end to mischief night with an appeal for what they called a safe and sane Halloween. Now, if you grew up someplace where they allow fireworks on the 4th of July, you probably recognize that motto. It was, it was the Boy Scouts of America also who promoted the safe and sane 4th of July using uh, um, safe fireworks, you know, as opposed to skyrockets and M80s and so forth. Uh, safe and sane. It became the motto for the, man, uh, the fireworks manufacturers. But it started with Halloween. You know, the idea that they put forward as an alternative to the, the mischief and vandalism was, you know, they promoted this kind of benign extortion where the kids would go house to house and say trick or treat. And, you know, the treat being the price of leaving their neighbor's gates unswitched and their windows unsoaped. And the trick or treat only really caught on after World War II. So it's a baby boomer thing. You know, and that's when, you know, at that time, Halloween was mainly seen as a holiday for kids. But when the baby boomers got older, you know, that huge demographic is now in their 20s and 30s. You get in the 1980s and Halloween becomes a, a big business for adults. You know, because that, that same huge demographic is now uh, old enough to for other pursuits than trick-or-treating. And Halloween has become a multi-million dollar cottage industry with companies you know, producing hundreds of, of costumes and masks and decorations and so on. And of course, I mean, the, the big issue with Halloween now for most people is that they drink too much or they, you know, they dress in, in immoral or, you know, immodest costumes, that kind of thing. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's other issues, but you know, it's funny how the fundamentalist Christians on one hand and the modern neo-pagans on the other want to describe Halloween as coming from European witchcraft and druid paganism when in fact they had no tradition of trick-or-treating or costume parties or any of that in Europe until Halloween came along as an American import. I mean, I suppose that you can trace costume wearing being uh, associated with um, All Souls Day or All Saints Day because during the plague in France, they had what was called the Dance Macabre, where 
people would dress up in costume and it was, you know, they would go to the, the cemetery or whatever, and there'd be a guy dressed like death. And it was sort of like a mystery play. The guy dresses, the Grim Reaper would go and there'd be a guy dressed like the Pope. And he would appeal to him on the basis of his dignity. And then death says, no, sorry, you got to come with me. And saying, so, then they would go to the King and then, you know, the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker, right? All these different costumes representing all the different kinds of people. And the fact that death is no respecter of persons that everybody dies. Okay. And as a, as a way to remind Catholics to think about the four last things, um, you know, and that's the thing. One of the, I, I always mention, I always encourage at this time of year, Catholics to avoid, you know, uh, fundamentalist materials or, or things put out by our separated brethren if they're researching Halloween. Because, I mean, they get so much wrong about Catholicism in other areas, like the sacraments or prayer to the saints or purgatories, where you know that they're, that they're missing the point. Why would you trust what they have to say about Halloween? We'll talk a little bit more about that, and then we're going to talk about the communion of saints, the real thing behind All Saints Day. And uh, when we come back with lots more right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, no-nonsense Catholic, stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before uh, the break, I was talking about um, the the way that or why Catholics should really uh, avoid fundamentalist materials when they're researching Halloween, because you know, considering that uh, our separated uh, fundamentalist brethren get so much wrong about Catholicism in other areas, like I mentioned, the sacraments or Mary, prayer of the saints, purgatory, and so forth. Why would you trust what they have to say about Halloween? And I think the late Jack Chick uh, was probably the worst offender that I can think of. I, he was extremely anti-Catholic, and he did not scruple to purposely misrepresent the facts or simply make things up out of whole cloth, which is to say with no factual or historical basis whatsoever. And he published several tracts on Halloween, all of which are <laughs> laughable nonsense. You know, they've got one of them is a little boy goes out trick-or-treating, gets hit by a car. And Jesus sends him to hell because he was, you know, uh, participating in this ancient practice, which this ancient practice, you know, that was made up in the 1930s by the Boy Scouts. Okay. Um, and um, I, I wanted another one of them. They, they said that the Druids used to go house to house where trick or treating came from. The Druid priests used to go house to house in, in Ireland and England. And, and the people would put out a jack-o'-lantern the window so that they would pass over their house, kind of a, kind of a bizarre, uh, mockery of Passover. But, you know, uh, again, jack-o'-lanterns, that's an American thing. Pumpkins, uh, are from the new world. <laughs> they weren't introduced uh, into Europe until after, uh, the Druids were, uh, long gone. And speaking of Druids, we, you know, we get a lot of neo-pagans talking about that. Simple fact of the matter is, and I remember talking to a, an Anglican priest who was a an historian of Druid lore, being an English guy. And, and he said there are three kind of, there's like three ways to approach the Druids. He says there, there's the way we think the Druids were, the scholarly, the way we wish the Druids were, like romantically. And he says, and the, dra the way the Druids really were, of which we know absolutely nothing, because they were pre-literate. They, they uh, you know, they didn't write things down and, before they converted to Christianity. So Druidism is essentially lost. 
Uh, not that it was, you know, worth much to begin with if they were so willing to abandon it for Christianity. The, the point is that uh, it is sometimes in these kind of anti-Catholic things, which made their way into American encyclopedias and dictionaries, you'll often find um, these articles about Halloween that don't have, they don't cite any primary sources because there aren't any, right? Uh, the idea that the witchcraft, uh, Wicca was an old pre-Christian religion, didn't, I mean, that very notion didn't appear until the 20th century. And so weirdly, you have the fundamentalists and the witches and the neo-pagans uh, becoming strange bedfellows, right? Because in their common aversion to the Catholic faith, they've created this kind of echo chamber for keeping the old myths and, and misunderstandings alive. And the thing is, you know, some modern witches and neo-pagans have treated the fundamentalist nonsense as if it was actually history. And then they come up with their own equally false justification of the so-called religious practices that simply never existed. Uh, even goodwilled converts can muddy the waters, especially people, you know, people that convert uh, from, you know, Satanism or neo-paganism or, or people who are involved with the various secret societies often bring a lot of baggage with them because things have been misrepresented to them. You know, I've seen stuff on Facebook and YouTube, even where, where, where fundamentalist Christians and even one set of a Cantist uh, Catholic group accuse modern stage magicians of being in league with Satan to do their tricks. I mean, and you put them, they see up, they put up slow motion videos of like David Copperfield saying, look, that's not just some trick. That's real. You know, and maybe they've even got the, the, the testimony of some supposed ex-witch or ex-Satanist, you know, who, who's come to Jesus and claims that Chris Angel or Penn and Teller or whatever have demonic help with their Las Vegas acts. But I can tell you, as a former professional magician, I'm sorry to say that's just that's absolute nonsense. Let me assure you that any professional magician and most well-posted amateurs can tell you how David Blaine or Chris Angels do their tricks, although they probably won't. Uh, in any event, I maintain that Halloween is not a pagan festival that's been Christianized. It's a Christian holiday. But that said, it most certainly has been co-opted by secularists and by the neo-pagans. Not unlike Christmas, okay? But I, I'm not going to forego my, my jack-o'-lantern uh, or, or forbid my kids to go trick-or-treating any more than I'm going to throw out my Christmas tree or my holly wreath. Prudence and common sense should be your guide. Because for all I've said, it is true that Halloween has been co-opted and, you know, promotes morality on the secular side and is used by the self-styled, you know, witches and their neo-pagan fellow travelers as a way of drawing kids into their influence. There's an entire cottage industry of occult materials that are being marketed directly to children. Um, Llewellyn Publishing puts out a book called Teen Witch that's been their number one bestseller for, for years, a couple of decades now, outselling even uh, a popular book on astrology that they've had in continual publication for the better part of the last hundred years. So, I mean, the, the fact that kids get into the occult and so forth, that, that is real. And the fact that they misrepresent Halloween as a way to attract them is also real. In the preface to the screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis notes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So when it comes to Halloween, use your head. Use the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you received in your confirmation. Pray for discernment. You know, obviously, it's spiritually dangerous to dabble with casting spells or you know, playing with Ouija boards and the like. And it clearly isn't healthy for kids to obsess over horror movies or horror comics or so on. But that doesn't make It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, a gateway into the occult. The most important thing is to remember what Halloween really is, the vigil of All Saints Day, where we honor the church triumphant, followed immediately by All Souls Day, where we pray for the uh, church suffering. And that's, you know, the communion of saints. And that's what I wanted to turn to now. I spent a couple of minutes talking about that. You know, the Catholic Church is called the mystical body of Christ. And the reason is that its members are united by a uh, supernatural bond with one another and with Christ the head, which, you know, resembles uh, the members in the head of a living body. St. Paul uses this language um, in Colossians 1.18. He says, Christ is the head of his body, the church. Or in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, you are the body of Christ, member for member. Or in Romans chapter 12, we, though many, are one body in Christ. Jesus himself used a similar uh, uh, symbol when he talked about, I am the vine and you are the branches, and you must be connected to me and that anyone that doesn't abide with me, you know, is outside the body, right? It's outside the vine. So in the mystical body of Christ, uh, Jesus's head wills to be helped by his body. And thus he, uh, uh, he rules the church, right? He's, he's the king of king, Lord of lords, the greatest of all the prophets and so on. And he rules the church. He's head of the church, but he rules Indirectly, he rules through the hierarchy, which is a human authority. Uh, you know, it's like the way that the human head to live needs the rest of the body. And the hierarchy is the material um, on which is formed the image of Christ. So the acts and the ceremonies and the rituals and the liturgy, liturgy of the church, these are all outward signs of the inward reality of the union of her members with one another and with Christ the head. It's a visible manifestation of the common supernatural life in, in the Trinity, which was what Our Lady of America was all on about, by the way. We'll be talking about that, too, I hope, before the end of the year. Now, uh, among the um, members of the body of Christ, there's, there's, a, there's an interdependence between uh, the church suffering and the church triumphant and the church militant. Uh, it's like what St. Paul talks about, you know, can the eye say to the foot, I don't need you, and so forth. You know, that's, um, and you can see it, um, I'll see, and as an example would be a Catholic prays to recover from some illness, but he doesn't, right? Evidently, his prayers weren't answered, but did they go to waste? No, they don't. God doesn't let any work, any good work go to waste, and the merits of the prayers are not lost for the mystical body. You know, and, and so there's this continuous contribution and distribution of merits and graces amongst the uh, uh, body of Christ, all profiting towards eternal life, right? And that's what we call in the uh, Apostles' Creed, we call it the communion of saints. It's the union of the faithful on earth with the blessed in heaven 
and the souls in purgatory, right? One mystical body with three aspects, okay? Uh, the saints and the angels are the church triumphant, okay? And, and because they've gained that crown of victory, right, they are in heaven. They enjoy the beatific vision. They, the church suffering, uh, the souls in purgatory, they're called the church suffering because they still have to expiate for their sins. And hopefully we'll talk about purgatory uh, uh, before we're done today. And then the faithful on earth are the church militant um, because we're still in the battle. We're still in the struggle uh, uh, against the enemies of the soul. So we are all united in Christ. We, though many, are one body in Christ, as St. Paul says, severally members, severally members of one another. So that means that all the members of the church are one family, um, that we share in the spiritual treasures of the church. But not all the members of the church militant fully enjoy the benefit of the community of the saints, but only those who are in the state of grace. That's what he's talking about, the vine and the branch. It's got to stay grafted into the vine. And, and a dead member, so-called, uh, when a Catholic falls from the state of grace into the state of moral sin, they don't lose all the benefits of the communion of saints because the church prays for them publicly, even in the liturgy. And a Catholic still belongs to the church, even though he's a great sinner. And he has more hope of being converted than someone who would cut himself off from the body. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about purgatory explicitly in this communion of saints as we approach uh, this great feast of All Saints Day and All Souls Day next week. Be right back. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I saw the screen come up in the empty chair in Studio B, and I thought, where the heck am I? <laughs> uh, funny how the brain works. Anyway, we were talking about um, All Saints Day. All Saints Day, what a, uh, a wonderful celebration of longstanding. It is an important day in the church, so important, in fact, that it is uh, a holy day of obligation. Now, I don't know about you, I guess because it's on a Monday in our diocese, uh, they have uh, said it's not a holy day of obligation. You don't have to go. Typically, it is a holy day of obligation. It is around the world. We will certainly be going, and I hope that you will as well. I hope you have the opportunity to to get to Mass on All Saints Day and uh, and honor those who have gone before us and are enjoying the beatific vision in the Church Triumphant. You want to be friends with the saints in heaven, because their prayers are very powerful. You know, St. James says that uh, the, the prayers of a righteous person are very powerful. How much more powerful the prayers of, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints who see Christ face to face in heaven. Um, you know, you can't get any more righteous than that. But what I don't want to forget about All Souls Day, which is the day that we set aside to pray for the souls of uh, in purgatory, for what we call the church suffering. And we call it the, the church suffering because they experience pain in purgatory, and that pain, uh, church tells us chiefly, the chief pain is being deprived of the beatific vision. And, you know, that's the vision of God in heaven. And that, you know, the reason that that temporary division is the most severe punishment is because 
having left this life, having, you know, stood before the judgment seat of Christ, the poor souls have a full knowledge of what they're missing. And so that, that pain of separation, even though it's temporary, is the greatest of their pains. It's like David says in the Psalms, as the, as the heart panteth after the fountain of water, so my soul pants after thee. Right? The, 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 the general tradition of the church is that they also suffer um, and suffer acutely in other ways. St. Augustine said that uh, the sufferings of the poor souls are greater than the sufferings of all the martyrs. And, and St. Thomas backs that up. He says that the, the, the least pain here on earth, uh, or the least pain in purgatory is greater than the greatest pain on earth. So, and, and the greatness and the duration of a soul suffering in purgatory, that varies according to the gravity of their sins. But we talk about duration because unlike heaven and hell, which are eternal, purgatory is temporal. It exists in time. So you actually spend you know, a, your, your stay in purgatory, if you go to purgatory, has duration. You will be there for a specific amount of time. You know, and, and if you've, clearly, if you've lived a long life and you, maybe you've been a sinner, somebody who, you know, a, a deathbed convert, for example, is going to spend more time in the fires of purgatory, you know, making up for the, the temporal punishment due for their sins than, say, you know, a, a child, young child who, who dies in the state of grace and, and only has the, you know, the, the venial sins typical to an ordinary child. You know, the, the fact that, that some stole souls, sorry, the fact that some souls, having trouble with my lips again, uh, stay in purgatory longer than others is implied by the fact that the church doesn't have any limit on offering masses for the dead. Um, you know, there are some institutions that have been, uh, you know, foundations for, you know, praying for somebody's soul that have gone for centuries. Okay. Uh, St. Augustine said that um, those stay the longest in purgatory who have loved the goods of the earth the most, right? So some saints have held that certain souls in purgatory suffer no pain except for their exclusion from the vision of God. And practically all are agreed that purgatory, uh, in purgatory, the souls suffer most in those things which they sin the most. Uh, once again, I think Thomas Akempis, the imitation, puts it best. He says, uh, in, in what things a man has most sinned, in those shall he be most grievously tormented. Now, the poor souls, though, and this is the difference between purgatory and hell, and it's so important. The poor souls have much to console them. The damned do not, right? I, I think it's Milton who puts the sign over the gate of hell, abandon hope all ye who enter here. But that's not true of the souls in purgatory. You know, they, they're, they don't have... Uh, you know, they're free from temptation. Think about that. They can't commit a sin. Not even the slightest sin. Right? Uh, uh, not even the sin of impatience. <laughs> uh, um, because, and they're, they're sure of their deliverance. So they have no distress of mind. They don't have any anxiety. They're comforted by the prayers of the angels and the saints and of the people on earth who are praying for them. And they're secure in the knowledge that they will be going to heaven. All the souls in purgatory go to heaven someday. You can't sin in purgatory. Okay, so once you're there, you're there until you've, you've atoned 
for the temporal punishment due to your sins, and then it's off to the beatific vision. Now, the thing is uh, that the church teaches us the poor souls can't help themselves. Uh, their time to, to merit graces is over, right? They, they can no longer merit anything for themselves because that time, that ended with their death. So just as they can no longer commit any sins, they can no longer uh, um, satisfy for their sins. They can't merit the graces to satisfy for their sins. So that's why we who, who can merit by our good works and our prayers and so forth here in on earth, the church militant, should you know, uh, um, offer prayers and sacrifices and good works, alms and so forth, for the holy souls so that they can be the sooner delivered from their prison, as uh, you know, St. Peter would call it. We have a special obligation to help not just the souls in purgatory generally, but especially our relatives, friends, and benefactors who have preceded us into the next life. And if, you know, even though they can't benefit or uh, can't merit rather anything for themselves, they can still pray for us. We can pray for them that they would be, you know, uh, to help make up for their temporal punishment due for their sins, but they can intercede for us because they're on the, you know, they're saints in the making. They're, they're the, they're the, um, the souls of, of the just made perfect in the process of being made perfect. So they can pray for us. They can intercede for us. So if we're helping them, they, they can repay us right away with their intercession. And, and nobody who has a, a devotion to the holy souls in purgatory has, and no one who's ever, you know, and has asked for their intercession uh, has, you know, gone unanswered. So we can help the poor souls in purgatory. How? By our prayers, I mentioned, by uh, other good works, by almsgiving, most especially by offering holy mass. Holy sacrifice of mass, the, courtes, the greatest prayer that can be offered, the greatest help that we can offer, and especially because the effects of the mass depend upon the mass. Right? The sacraments function ex opere operato, so it doesn't matter if it's the new mass or the old mass. It doesn't matter if, if the, the, you know, the, the piety of the priest, if he's not uh, you know, a, a perfect exemplar of, of the priestly life. If he's offering the mass, it's the mass. And something that used to be traditional, there are still religious orders uh, in, the no, in the Novus Ordo. There are still traditional groups of priests that offer the Gregorian masses, right? The Gregorian masses is, is 30 masses uh, for a specific intention celebrated on 30 consecutive days. You know, so you can do that for some deceased person. You get 30 masses said uh, 30 days in a row for their relief in, in, uh, from purgatory. And if we can't have mass said, I know um, <clears throat> at you know our parish, I'm sure most parishes, you know, you want to have mass said, and sometimes you know there's the waiting list as long as your arm because you're not the only one. And so if we can't have mass said, we can we can ourselves offer mass when we assist at mass. When you make your intention before the mass, that you can say that you intend to hear it for the relief of the poor souls in purgatory, or for some specific person, some relative friend or benefactor, some famous person that's died, whatever it might be. Um, you know, this is the sacrifice of our Lord himself and is the greatest thing that we can offer for the souls in purgatory. 
We should pray, when we pray for the holy souls, we should pray with devotions. Uh, and, and that's the important part. It's not so much what the prayer is or how long the prayer is or how eloquent the prayer is, because as we know, you know, it's not about the words, it's about the love and the heart of the person who's praying. That's what God looks at. Um, uh, almsgiving too, you know, uh, pompous funerals and a profusion of flowers and so forth isn't of any avail, as St. John Chrysostom says, but not by weeping, but by prayer and almsgiving are the dead relieved. So by helping the poor here in, uh, you know, behalf or on behalf of the souls in purgatory to give to charity that, you know, uh, that can help the, uh, the holy souls. So, I mean, the church would say rather than sending a costly wreath to the family of a dead friend, have masses said for him. Right. And there's also something, and I always have to hit this quickly, called the heroic act. Uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan was a popular uh, spiritual writer. You've probably seen his little books. Um, you know, the, the, the wonders of the holy name, the wonders of the mass. He's got two books on purgatory, Read Me or Rue It and uh, How to Avoid Purgatory. And in both of those, they describe what's called, he describes what's called the heroic act. And the heroic act is an act by which a person surrenders on behalf of the holy souls in purgatory all of the satisfaction made to God uh, by his good works, including whatever satisfaction may be offered for him by others during his life and after. You can see why they say that's heroic. But that's that, that act is enriched by special favors. And and the, a person who makes that heroic act can apply every indulgence gained to the poor souls in purgatory, gain a plenary indulgence that's applicable to the poor souls um, every time he receives communion or every Monday. You know, and it's an error to suppose that that if you give up your merits or offer prayers and good works for the poor souls, that you lose something for yourself. Because clearly. Prayer confers a blessing not only on the person prayed for, but on the person who prays. And it is going to obtain for you friends in high places, not only in purgatory where they can intercede, but also then in heaven when they will be enjoying the beatific vision and repay your heroic act with their prayers on your behalf. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, have a safe and sane and holy Halloween. Enjoy our... our this year's holy um, All Hallowtide and also the Feast of Christ the King for those of you that go to the Extraordinary Forum. And we'll be back next week talking about that and uh, the place of Christ as King in our lives today and in society and lots more on the next No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thanks for listening and may God richly bless you and your family.